Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. Minicoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out Minicoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Mark Crispin Miller. Mark is a professor of media, culture, and communication at New York University, and he's the author of several books, including Boxed In, The Culture of TV, The Bush Dyslexicon, Observations on a National Disorder, Cruel and Unusual, Bush Cheney's New World Order, Fooled Again, The Real Case for Electoral Reform, and he's also the editor of several other books. His essays and articles have appeared in many journals, magazines, and newspapers throughout the nation and world. And most interestingly for our times today, he until recently taught a course on propaganda at New York University. So I'm very anxious to talk to him about everything that's going on today. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for having me, Tom. Now, you first came to my attention when you were interviewed on the Tom Woods show, and this seems like 10 years ago, but it was only two, when you ran into the cancel culture for the COVID heresy originally, maybe in 2020. What was all that about and where does it stand right now? I'll try to be succinct, although it's a long and fascinating story, but suffice it to say that in the fall of 2020, I enraged a student in my propaganda course by suggesting that the class take a look at the scientific literature on masking. This was at the beginning of the semester, and I was simply making the point that it is optimal to study propaganda in real time having gone over a fair amount of the history of modern propaganda. And I, I picked as an example of the kind of thing we could look at or that they could write their papers on the mask mandates. And I suggested, therefore, that they take a look at all the scientific literature on masking, all the randomized controlled trials of masking, which would show them that all those very rigorous scientific studies have found that masks do not prevent transmission of respiratory viruses. Anyone who wants to study the mask mandates as propaganda would read those and as well read the more recent studies that had come out in the summer of 2020 
finding or purporting to find that masks uh, are effective. As I say, one of the students was so in, infuriated by this suggestion that rather than vent in class or over Zoom, because we were doing the class remotely, she went on Twitter and demanded that I be fired. And that in itself, although unpleasant, was not such a big deal. She has that First Amendment. But what was unacceptable to me and what made this into a major controversy uh, is the fact that NYU essentially took her side. Now, all the details of what happened are on my GoFundMe page. There's also a petition up at change.org that I put up right away after NYU sided with this student. This then evolved a few weeks later to the point that a majority of my department colleagues sent a letter to the dean arguing that while they believe in academic freedom, which is a preamble I've learned uh, to distrust when I hear it, <laughs> they believed that in line with the faculty handbook, if a colleague's behavior is sufficiently egregious, it should nullify his academic freedom, his or her academic freedom. And that indeed they held that that was the case with me so that they were demanding from the Dean an expedited review of my conduct. Now I'm finally answering your question. I was hit with cancel culture. I was, first of all, charged with COVIDian heresy <laughs> for telling the students in my propaganda course not to wear masks, which I never said. I said the opposite, as a matter of fact. So that was one pie that they threw at me. They also accused me of routine hate speech. And this was based on some stuff I'd posted on my website about transgenderism basically questioning radical sexual intervention and the sexual development of children, medical, let me say that again, radical medical intervention in the sexual development of children and allowing biological males to compete in girls' and women's athletics. I didn't bring these issues up in class, but I did, as I say, share this material on my website. That, that got me accused of hate speech. So there was the social justice attack and I was also inevitably accused of conspiracy theory. Now, this is a group of my colleagues who had never seen me teach, really had no idea what I was doing in class. They just didn't like the sound of it. They, on the ground of this student's complaint, they attempted to get me fired. So um, I'm leaving out a lot of fascinating details. The long and short of it is that I asked them uh, twice having sent them a detailed rebuttal of their letter, every claim in which was demonstrably false and libelous, I asked them twice to retract their request and to apologize, and they simply ignored me. So I decided I had no choice but to sue them for libel. NYU, a year after this all happened, actually longer than a year, finally having mounted this review, they decided I had not violated any NYU policies and they let the matter drop, which was gratifying. The lawsuit, this is news for your audience because I haven't gone public with it yet. The judge in the case took over a year to rule on my colleague's motion to dismiss. All the documents pertaining to this 
case are up on my website if people want to read them because they are the makings of a really terrific academic novel it's not a movie <laughs> an academic novel set in this moment and they can see that i hit the censorship trifecta because i was accused of putting my students lives at risk through covidian heresy i was accused of hate speech which is the social justice uh, cudgel and i was accused of conspiracy theory so I don't know of anyone who's who's been richly censored as I have been. At any rate, the judge finally ruled in favor of their motion to dismiss, which shocked my lawyer, although it did not surprise me. NYU has a lot of clout with the bench in New York State. And basically the judge claimed that we did not demonstrate actual malice. This is demonstrably um uh, untrue. So we are appealing. And if anyone still trusts GoFundMe enough to help me out, they can <laughs> donate there. Although we did raise a great deal of money, I think more than enough to file suit. As it happens, more news. My lawyer is now also suing the CIA for hoovering up the private data of everyone who came to visit Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. It's a big case. So I've decided to devote my own prominence, not that I'm that prominent, to helping raise funds for that lawsuit. Did you visit Julian Assange? No, I, no, I didn't. I'm, I'm just very sympathetic to that, everything about that case uh, and sympathetic to Assange, wh whom I regard as a canary in the coal mine, because what happened to him at the hands of the US and the UK really foretold what's been happening to just about everybody who contradicts or threatens prevailing propaganda narratives. Now, no one can pretend to, to be suffering as much as he has suffered, but the fact is that what happened to him uh, on no clear legal basis and in violation of constitutional protections, what happened to him is what you get when you threaten a propaganda narrative, right? That's what he did with WikiLeaks. Collateral, what's it called? Collateral murder, that video that he released through WikiLeaks, which showed the, the gunship crew firing on Iraqi civilians, that was a serious blow dealt to the heroic narrative of the US fighting the war on terror and keeping us all safe. All of us, since the rollout of COVID, many of us, professors, scientists, doctors, as well as activists and whistleblowers and many others, have been you know, severely punished for threatening the propaganda narrative. And that's what I was doing in my propaganda course. I was teaching the slaves how to read, you know, <laughs> and uh, my colleagues, and this university uh, clearly had a problem with that, which raises some pretty troubling questions about the state of the academy today. How long did you teach the propaganda course? How many years? About 20. 20 years. Okay. So I would think by its very nature, a propaganda course is about questioning the official narrative. And over those 20 years, you may have brought up many examples where you and the Washington Post or the New York Times or Fox News or whomever weren't seeing eye to eye. 
But suddenly in 2020, really, that's what you're doing. You're doing the same thing you've always done. And all of a sudden, you not only get hit for questioning the masks, but it's the whole litany. Because I did go on to your website and I read some of the documents and the list was pretty long of things you were accused of. It's almost if you commit one heresy, you're guilty of them all. Yes, that's very well put. That's absolutely right. It turns out if anyone goes, see, when they filed their motion to dismiss, my colleagues made the sort of jaw-dropping claim that everything they said about me was true and that they didn't mean to get me fired and that I was the one who publicized this. All those are demonstrably false. But in in uh, support of their claim that they were actually telling the truth about me or not lying, they submitted a lot of exhibits, most of which were their own internal email exchanges about me. Going back several years, I had no idea that I was an object of such interest, such malicious interest on their part. So they were uneasy about what I was teaching even before COVID, because as you say, you can't teach propaganda without questioning official narratives. And just because they have never heard of the copious and precise evidence, for example, that JFK was killed as a result of a conspiracy within the U.S. government. This is news to them because they only read the New York Times. That is, in their eyes, an outrageous, wild, irresponsible speculation. So they were already freaking out about things that a few students had said to them I was discussing in class. But now, you're quite right. Since the rollout of COVID, if you're guilty of one sin, you're guilty of all the sins because they're all connected. And this has everything to do, I think, with Trump's becoming president because that that utterly politicized or pseudo-politicized all discussion of COVID and the vaccines, all discussion of the 2020 election, now Russia and Ukraine, Something's happened to the minds of my colleagues in academia, the minds of many people in the medical establishment, and the minds of most people working for the media. You really just cannot have a civil and impartial conversation about any of these issues without immediately being treated as the enemy. Far right. I'm called far right. You read the titles of some of my books. I wrote three books about Bush Cheney, which were hardly supportive. I never would have dreamed back then that I would be such a target uh, for people on the left, but that's what's happened. It's been a rude awakening for a good many of us over the last two years. That's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. So for me, I was born in 1965, so I've seen a few trips around the sun, and, and for most of my life, the idea of free speech and civil liberties was something we could count on the left for. And when you go back through most of the 20th century, it seemed people on the left were the ones who were under attack in that way. I'm thinking back to after World War I, Smedley Butler, Eugene Debs, and those kinds of people, and then the civil rights people in, in the 1950s and 60s. And somewhere along the way, it seems like it's now left-wing thing to repress speech. I wonder two things. Is it just Trump? He just short-circuited everything. 
or I I see the influence of Herbert Marcusa and repressive tolerance, that kind of thing, almost as if that's caught fire. What do you think of that? That's a good question. Trump is the proximate cause of this derangement, right? But the real roots of it go much deeper than that. And I, I, I just finished reading James Lindsay's Race Marxism, and he gets into Marcuse and the New Left and the that whole intellectual and theoretical background to what's happened to the left today. And I think it's extremely good. I recommend it highly. However, I also think that's only part of the story. I, I have never bought the idea that a lot of campus leftists have succeeded in making critical race theory thing in the Department of Defense or at Verizon. You know, Verizon makes all its workers take these seminars or whatever they are on critical race theory. I don't think that the campus left could ever have done anything like that. I have only made uh, a beginning at studying how the CIA primarily in the late 60s was already pushing the left in the direction of identity politics as a way to depoliticize it, as a way to balkanize it, to divide it. I think that's probably got more to do with what's happening now than Marcuse's influence, which I think is significant. It certainly has affected the thinking of people in critical race theory, that whole strain of history going up through post-structuralism. It's a complicated and interesting history, but I don't think intellectual history alone can explain what's happened. Just as the FBI succeeded in destroying the Black Panthers and then went on to wreck progressive labor, which was a fairly successful campus left movement in the 70s, the CIA, in various ways, cultivated Afrocentrist activists, and they would get money from the Ford Foundation, which is a CIA pass-through, and they'd go into major urban public school systems and wreak havoc and divide people from one another. That's what's actually happened. The Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation, starting in the late 60s, started to heavily favor research projects, academic research projects focused on race and gender, see, to the exclusion of discussions of class, political economy, a more kind of classical Marxist research. I, I think that was not an accident. That has had the effect of moving the campus left or the professorial left in the direction where they could get the money they needed to do their work. And this had, has, has helped to create the academy today, which, to speak to your question or your point, is left in a very eccentric way. I was born in 1949. So I was in college around the time of Kent State and the war in Vietnam and all that. And my memory of the left is, as you say, of a, a movement that was utterly committed to free speech, utterly opposed to censorship, also focused primarily on stopping the war and on stopping the military-industrial complex. Those are issues that don't matter at all to the left today, which is as warlike as the right used to be. Look at them now screaming about Russia. They're doing more propaganda. Also, we were heavily into civil rights. The left today is into segregation whether it's based on critical race theory 
at pushing for Blacks-only dorms and Blacks-only graduation ceremonies, but also, of course, on the basis of vaccination status. The left, what calls itself the left, is unrecognizable to me. And I'm not the only one. I meet many people who feel stranded, marooned, as Del Bigtree said to me, marooned, politically marooned. You know, They've always identified as being on the left, but now the left is like the right used to be, russophobic, hostile to the working class, interested in segregation, pushing for censorship. Who are these people? It seems to me that they are now the problem. Thinking about the war propaganda, so I remember clearly the war on terror propaganda and being appalled that my fellow Americans would literally be pouring French wine in the streets and the freedom fries. And it seemed almost childish to me. It seems even worse with the Ukrainian propaganda that the narrative, the story is something so outlandish, like the beauty queen with the rifle in the window or whatever, that nobody could possibly believe it, but so many people do. Do you see that the story is getting more and more childish almost, or is that it always been this way and I'm just noticing it now? That's a really good question. On the one hand, it's a familiar story. You know, you mentioned freedom fries, right? Now you can't eat Russian dressing. It goes all the way back to the First World War when they renamed sauerkraut Liberty Cabbage, see, because sauerkraut was too German sounding. It, it is all too familiar, <clears throat> and, and therefore it's very troubling to discover yet again, as people have discovered in the past, that humankind as a species hasn't really progressed a centimeter beyond not just the credulous masses in World War I, but you could take the story all the way back to the burning of witches. You can look at, I, 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 I often mention Henry Mackey's book, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, which is a classic from 1841. And he goes over all these loony fixations that people would have spontaneously and you realize that it's the same old story. It hasn't changed. But what's really off the charts about this particular war propaganda drive is that we have all these ostensibly anti-fascist people on the left vigorously applauding a, a Nazi regime. Yeah. The regime that was placed in power by the U.S. coup in 2014 was equal parts neoliberal technocrats who are interested in austerity measures for the poor Ukrainian people, and then unabashed, outspoken, highly dangerous neo-Nazis. They don't make any bones about it. These Punisher battalions fighting in the East, the insignia on their banners based on the SS insignia, they talk about untermenschen, undermen, subhumans. They're Nazis. Now you've got people who freak out about the truckers, freak out about January 6th and say, oh, Trump's Hitler and his base are Nazis. They're the ones who are supporting Nazis against Russia. 
because they've long since swallowed the Russiagate Kool-Aid and all that stuff. Trump is Putin, is Stalin, is Hitler. There, there are no working minds in that multitude, unfortunately. So on the one hand, what we're seeing now is familiar. It's a regression to 1917 or 2001, but it's also a peculiarly awful and kind of a new way too. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. It's funny, the Nazi part of it, because most of the people who are vehemently for the Ukrainians really have no idea about what's gone on there in the last eight years. And when I talk to friends even and say Nazis, they'll say things like, I don't think they are because, and they've been conditioned or conditioned themselves to think of Nazi as an adjective. It's not a proper name. And I said, no, these people really are Nazis. They admit it. They have the insignia, the salute, the whole thing. So it is incredible. And also this whole idea with Zelensky as this wonderful hero and just the fact that he was shelling civilian neighborhoods a few weeks ago. It's just startling to me it seems like there's a difference to me over the course of my life of what people are willing to swallow but i think what you're saying is hey it's always been a little bit like that yes that's true but i want to i want to add something to that point it has always been that way but i i want to avoid that kind of fatalism by pointing out that it didn't have to be like this if the media and the academy and the schools generally had not failed abysmally to honor their responsibilities, you know, to teach people about history and geography, things like that. Everybody wouldn't be so susceptible in the same way that they were like 105 years ago. If you are ignorant of the background of a situation, as your friends and all too many of mine are, they just didn't focus on the coup in Ukraine. They just read the Times. And they saw pictures of Victoria Nuland bringing cookies to the protesters, that kind of thing. They don't know. They wouldn't watch Oliver Stone's two documentaries on what happened, Ukraine on fire and revealing Ukraine. They wouldn't watch anything online that tries to take an impartial or pro-Russian view of the situation. 
They would never listen to a speech of Putin's, for example, because they already know everything. They know who's good and who's bad. And Putin's bad because the Times has said so for, I guess, about 23 years. And they never stop to think that what they hear might be false. This is a tragedy for which certain professions are answerable. One is the professoriate and school teachers, and the other is the media. I think back to when I was in high school and college, and I can't remember which setting I read which book in, but I I know at least in high school, because this high school teacher just passed away a few weeks ago, but we had to read A Clockwork Orange. And I remember this particular teacher reading the first line, what's it going to be then, eh? And he had this kind of voice. And I had to read Brave New World and, of course, 1984. And I came out of my schooling, whether it was biased left or not or right, with a general suspicion of the government that they're up to no good and you really have to have some suspicion about them and propaganda and brainwashing. Do students still read those books? Do they come out of school with any of that these days or no? That's a good question. I assign 1984 in my propaganda course because it's a very interesting book to study in that context. Because when it came out, it it, it was uh, hailed and highly publicized and given rapturous reviews, but in the service of Cold War ideology. The novel was treated as as an indictment of the Soviet system and nothing else. And Orwell, who was quite ill by that time, he didn't live much beyond the book's publication. He made a a wan effort at trying to clarify his point because mostly right-wing outlets were hailing his novel. And here he was, this lifelong democratic socialist. So it's interesting to study it. I I hope students are reading the novel. I fear that they're not reading many novels in school. They're not reading Shakespeare in school. I'm very old-fashioned when it comes to the liberal arts and what should be taught. We can't really underestimate the damage that woke ideology has done to whole generations of young people. I can't really answer your question, but my feeling is that the answer is probably not encouraging. I know you got to run, but one more question, and that's about the journalists, because you've had a chance to take a look at what they do over the past several decades from your perspective. And the other thing that hits me is that I remember journalists would go to a press conference with a politician, and the politician would give his talking points. And then the questions would be somewhat adversarial and at least challenge what he said, regardless of what political party the politician happened to be in. And and it seems at some point, at least by COVID and maybe before that, journalists got the idea it was their job to write down what the government says and then just publish it and not question it at all. Do you have a sense of when that started and how it happened? Yeah, I I do have a general sense of how it happened. It happened very gradually over decades. We know that the CIA has been cultivating American journalists for decades, really from the time the CIA was created in the late 40s. Many people have heard of Operation Mockingbird, but even aside from that formal operation, it's second nature to the CIA to cultivate the press wherever they are. They're not supposed to do that kind of thing in this country, but they do. 
and they've certainly done it wherever they're stationed. And they, and they have tended to cultivate, you know, liberal and even socialist journalists as a way to keep everybody confused. But even back in what we deem the heyday of adversarial journalism, journalism was not as adversarial as it looked or as we think. People will always mention Woodward and Bernstein, for example. Not many people know that Woodward was a spook. He came to journalism from having been in Navy intelligence, and he was the Joint Chief's briefing officer in the White House. He would go and brief Al Haig every week. None of this came up at the time Woodward and Bernstein became big celebrities in the 70s. This was all buried or even mendaciously denied. They would say Woodward was a liberal in college, he was against the war, and then he became a cub reporter. You know, They leave all this stuff out. I actually now realize, having studied it impartially and, and at some distance, that Watergate was a soft coup, that it was a way to get rid of Nixon without having to blow his brains out in broad daylight. Now, around that time, Seymour Hersh was a genuinely hard-hitting investigative journalist, and he was, at the time, with the New York Times. And even uh, Jack Anderson was more of an authentic investigative reporter than Woodward and Bernstein were. But if you closely track how the Times, for example, has covered story after story from World War I on, even going back further than World War I, you realize that it's always been a very reliable fount of state propaganda, the Times. This book, The Gray Lady Winked by Ashley Reinsberg, an independently published study of the Times treatment of a, a number of key episodes in 20th century history going into the 21st century, is very good at demonstrating how shockingly poor uh, as journalism, the Times has uh, the Times coverage has been coverage of the Nazis, coverage of Stalin's terror famine in Ukraine, the coverage of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's an inglorious history. I, I know journalists like to think of the, they used to like to think of themselves as adversarial. I don't know what they think of now, but the fact is the they're paying for their dishonesty and shoddiness now because they're losing their readers and viewers. We, we saw this when Joe Rogan went head to head with CNN. And this is a guy with whose most popular interviews would garner 40 million views, viewers. CNN doesn't even have a million viewers. This is amazing. What's happened is amazing, but it's it's also gratifying. It's encouraging that the public at least is voting with their feet, so to speak, or their eyes or whatever. You make a good point about the CIA too, because when you were talking about that, I was thinking about not only now it's so obvious they have John Brennan right on TV, but they seed so many talk shows with guests that have a background in the CIA. And I got to the point before I canceled cable in June of 2020, where I'd have CNBC on in the morning. And I just remembered there was a woman who came on to talk about oil issues. And all of a sudden, here come the talking points about Iran. And I just picked up my phone and said, the woman's name, I can't remember what it is, CIA. And sure enough, there it was. She used to be 
<laughs> and I thought, well, these people are everywhere. And really, it's not a subtle thing. Once you learn the script, you can see it everywhere. And it's discouraging, as I said, that more people don't just disregard the propaganda more readily. But at the same time, as you said, they're voting away from listening to the station. So maybe that's encouraging. In any case, I assume that you're going to have some kind of a book about everything that's happened since COVID at some point. Are you thinking about that? At the moment, I, I should, I guess, plug my own Substack, which I urge people to subscribe to. I, I write my own writings. I, I post on Substack. Meanwhile, I, I also maintain a listserv. It's called News from Underground. So is the Substack. So I have two two outlets called News from Underground. The listserv is a way for people just to get five or 10 unknown or misreported stories a day. I'll send them out and you can get them as emails. And you can sign up for that by going to my website, markcrispinmiller.com and just subscribing. It's free. And you can subscribe to the Substack for free, although I appreciate paid subscriptions. Um, I'm constantly working, trying to circulate this kind of urgently important information that many people don't know. And because this is such a big job, I, I really haven't had time to think about a book project, although I'd like to do it. I'd like at least to publish a collection of the things I've, I've written. But to give you an example of the kind of thing that really desperately needs to be done, but that nobody in the media is doing. Every week, on, on Wednesday, every week, I, I post on Substack updates of all those who have been reported to have died suddenly over the previous seven days. This is really astonishing. Before COVID, died suddenly in an, obitu in an obituary was a euphemism either for suicide or drug overdose. Now it is not. It is still used in those ways. But the vast majority of those reported sudden deaths or unexpected deaths are indeed sudden and unexpected deaths. The people will just drop dead, the way Bob Saget dropped dead, you know. And nobody's tracking this. And these are only the ones that make headlines, right? So there are now so many. It was a challenge to do it in the first place. It's now really becoming difficult. Now there are so many that I have to send out two separate ones each Wednesday. One noting all those reported to have died suddenly in the United States. And the other, all those reported to have died suddenly elsewhere in the world. And it isn't only a, a, a weekly catalog of all these really sad stories, but it also uh, includes a lot of media critique because the press is now struggling desperately to try to represent this staggering uptick in sudden and untimely deaths as explicable because of factors other than the vaccinations. And some of these are utterly ridiculous referee whistles, seriously. Referee whistles have been causing all those heart attacks among athletes. Healthy young rugby players or whatever. Right, <laughs> referee whistles, which didn't have that fatal effect before COVID.
there was an Italian piece that I found that said pizza margarita was causing all these Italians to drop dead with heart attacks and strokes. It's crazy. But I have to say that this kind of critique is crucial because the media is utterly complicit in this nightmare. We are living through, I, 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 I do not hesitate for a millisecond to say that this is a second Holocaust driven by the same interests that, that actually promoted eugenics research in Germany, as well as the US and the UK. They wanted to cull humankind long ago. They've been interested in this for over a century and they're doing it again. This is a depopulation exercise, among other things. And the media has served as its collective, their collective accomplice. The media cannot be allowed to escape accountability for this. Their, their, their work has been disgracefully dishonest and misleading. They shilled shamelessly, they continue to shill shamelessly for the vaccination program, even among children who are at no risk of, of catching COVID. That seems um, like it should strike people as very weird, just weird. Whatever you think the motivation is that this full court press, we've got to have these children when even the normies, so to speak, should be able to pick up the data and say, look, no children are dying from this virus. It's another case where I just can't believe it doesn't hit people weird. And the other thing, as you mentioned, the average life expectancy for an American man, I think it's something like 77 and a couple of years older for a woman. And that counts all the people that got hit by a car or had cancer or whatever. So when you see a 65-year-old man who doesn't have some kind of medical condition and didn't fall down the stairs, just reported in the news as having passed away and the family asked for privacy. Okay. That's a little weird, isn't it? <laughs> Especially yes. when it's the third one this week, just almost like we're through the looking glass in some kind of bizarre world. Oh, it's so true. It is so true. It is very unusual for a, an obituary or an article about somebody's passing to note no cause of death. That doesn't happen. Even people who are quite old and die, often the cause of their deaths is noted, right? So this is anomalous. This is unprecedented. And I think it's crucial work. And I only wish the media were doing it, but they're doing the opposite. They're trying to normalize it. They're trying to find out the reasons for it. Anything to get people not to associate this unprecedented vaccination program with this plague of sudden deaths, because there's still, people are still reeling from the COVID propaganda, which had them convinced that there was a plague of untimely deaths back then. And that was false, see? Now it's actually happening because of the vaccines that have been rolled out to save us from COVID. It's actually happening. But these people have been so pre-programmed by what they heard and what panicked them throughout 2020 that they can't focus on it and, and they don't want to focus on it because as is the case with anything we call a conspiracy theory, a conspiracy theory, this is my own definition, 
is something that, if true, you couldn't handle it. That's what a conspiracy theory is. So all the things that people nervously dismiss as conspiracy theories are things they don't want to think are true. Who wants to think that the health authorities of the nation and the world are actually killing people? Who wants to think that? Who wants to think the government assassinated a beloved president in broad daylight or flew jets into the Twin Towers? Nobody wants to think that. I don't want to think it. And I have no choice but to think it because I've studied these things. So it's only natural not to want to believe that stuff. And people don't want to think, of course, that the vaccines are lethal, especially if they've had them themselves. And I fully understand that. But at a certain point, you have to face reality. You can't just tell yourself that things are the way you want them to be. Because if you do that, you're asking for something worse than trouble. Last thing, really, the switch, the complete turnoff of all things COVID and switch over to all things Ukraine war. What's your take on that? What's the motivation for it? And why are people willing to, okay, now I have to care about this. Where's that coming from? That is amazing. I've been of two minds about Russia throughout this crisis, because on the one hand, I, I recognize, as we've discussed, that the Nazi problem in West Ukraine is a real problem, and it has been worsening for eight years. And then there were other provocations that the West ruled out that arguably made Putin's decision inevitable, right? At the same time, I'm mindful of his own connections to the World Economic Forum, that he was a graduate of the Young Global Leaders Program, and many of the Russian oligarchs have ties to the WEF. So I'm, I'm trying not to be to respond in too romantic a way, white hats, black hats. However, it is also possible that Putin was deliberately provoked as he was when he was so that this would then take off. The media was clearly ready to roll with this. It is quite obvious to me that the instantaneous shift from COVID, get vaccinated, every minute from every outlet, suddenly gives way to brutal Russia attacking the civilians in this plucky little democracy. Yeah. The same people who were out there at 7 p.m. every evening cheering the frontline health workers and hating people who weren't wearing masks and then hating people who wouldn't get injected. Same people are now dying their hair yellow and blue and all this other idiocy. And they are as ignorant now of the actual situation over there and its history as they were of the science around viruses, COVID, vaccines. I mean, their ignorance is staggering. And this is especially true, the most educated and the most liberal. Now that liberal has come to mean illiberal, I, there is no way in the world that this sudden universal change of subject wasn't deliberately engineered to get people's minds off the toll the ever-rising toll of, of the vaccines, and to take their minds off the, the daily revelations of 
mind-boggling fraud by Pfizer and Moderna and corruption on the part of the FDA and the CDC. If there weren't this big war distracting everyone from all that, I, I think that the authors of this catastrophe would be in much bigger trouble. But I don't think they can continue to keep people distracted forever. We're living at a kind of unprecedented moment. I, I can't think of any previous moment when there was a kind of rolling thunder of crisis after crisis, each one cynically and dishonestly managed. And I don't really believe you can do that forever. There will always be some people who are going to fall for whatever you throw at them. And other things are going to come out. I've been saying for a year now, and this may sound crazy, but I think that along with cyber attacks, food shortages, supply chain interruptions, all the stuff that we have been told to fear, indicating that it's going to happen. I also think there's going to be some kind of uh, alien invasion. Now, I don't mean Mexicans, <laughs> because they've been floating this for at least the last 10 months. Oh, there's something to this stuff of extraterrestrials. And you've got Obama and you've got Bush Jr. talking about their experience looking at the documents around Roswell. It just became a thing all of a sudden. And then you've got that propaganda film, Don't Look Up, which stars Leo DiCaprio, another graduate of Klaus Schwab's Young Leaders Program, Young Global Leaders. This stuff is in the air for a reason, always. It is not because it's worthwhile news. It is propaganda. And I think we should not only remain mindful of the possibility of these things happening, but also try to resolve to keep our heads when the next thing blows up. Because whatever it is, it's going to be traumatic. It's going to be disorienting. So that's the moment when your self-possession is most important. That you somewhere in, in, in the depths of your mind, you maintain the thought that this could be bogus too. You know what I mean? Just all the rest. That I think if that happens with enough people, we will get through this okay. And I actually think more fundamentally that we will prevail in the long run. Because what these psychopaths are trying to do is, is too grandiose to succeed. And it is too perverse and depraved to succeed. They really want to own the world and essentially stop the river of life, dictate which way it will flow and how many will live. That's what they want. They would be as gods. I don't think that can ever succeed, but it's likelier to fail sooner if we continue to do what we're doing, have honest, civil, informed conversations for wider distribution, keep telling people the truth, or at least the other side of the story, and be as much as possible, be civil and be merciful. It's very tempting to become enraged at people who are so credulous and who put masks on their kids and who have them injected. It's very hard to maintain your temper in the face of that kind of thing, but we have to do it. We just have to. Let's see what happens. One side of me is hopeful that they're going to overplay their hand, that surely this will be too much. 
And then sometimes I'm not. Mark, I want to thank you for spending all this time with me. I'm certainly going to link to your Substack and your listserv and several of your books on the show notes page. And I hope you'll be able to come back and talk again. I'd be glad to. Thanks for asking me. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. If you haven't already, don't forget to download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.